good to see you here today, and uh, we will invite our children who are in the sixth grade and below. They can follow Miss Lynn, who's our children's minister, around to the education wing for their teaching time. Again, welcome to Freedom, those of you who are gathered uh, in the room, but also to uh, many more who are watching online. We are so glad to have you tune in that way. Uh, we probably have more tuned in online uh, because of the storm now, but we are glad that we can connect uh, in this fashion. We also always want to greet our dear friends in Nigeria at our Safala campus. We just continue to celebrate how God is working among you. We love hearing the reports every week of what God is doing there. Well, it has been a, uh, a memorable week, hasn't it, to say the least. It has just felt like 2020 all week long. And uh, as Brad said, I, I don't know what is up with categorizing these storms, but uh, something is off Jackie and I stayed up late on Tuesday night tracking what was going on and, you know, on our phones even after we went to bed for as long as, as we had that, just uh, trying to see how bad it was going to be. And the last word when I went to sleep Sunday night or Tuesday night was that it was a cat one. Well, if that was a cat one, that was one bad cat is all that I know. We need, beyond that number, somebody needs to tell us how bad the cat is that is coming because that was a bad cat. Uh, I am grateful to say that uh, as, as best we've been able to check on the congregation that we don't know of anybody who's been injured. A lot of folks who've got uh, damage to their homes and countless trees down in yards and those kinds of things. But thankfully we can recover from all of that. Thanks for the way that you have been the body of Christ, uh, helping each other out, but also showing the love of Christ to your neighbors. This is a great time for the church to be the church, and there's still a lot to be done. We're going to turn our attention again to the scriptures now, so I'm going to invite you, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me to 1 Kings 19. We're in this series through the month of September that's focusing on the life of Elijah, a series that's entitled Living to Make a Difference. And Elijah was certainly one man who made a huge difference in his generation. But what we're going to talk about today is how to get back on track. Uh, it's been interesting to me to watch not just what the storm did, but it's been really encouraging to, to watch people respond as soon as the storm is over, before the winds and rain have even completely departed, to see how quickly everybody mobilizes to get things back on track around here. I mean, isn't it just crazy to witness? As we were driving in last evening, Jackie and I, with, along with some others, have been at the church a lot trying to get all the water taken care of and Trust me, you're glad folks have been here ahead of you because it has smelled bad in this building from all the water that has been in it, but trying to get it where it was uh, usable. And so as we were driving in for the, the last time last evening and just looking around and realizing in only three and a half days how many people have been mobilized to just begin to restore order, and we've still got a lot left to do, but it's crazy how much has been done. And it's interesting to see, for those of us who've lived here for a lot of years, how Folks just immediately know how to shift gears from that survival mode to that immediate recovery mode and just moving through the different stages of getting everything back in place and back on track. And it is amazing to watch. The folks who are from here know how to do this thing and get life back on track. If you're going to live on the Gulf Coast, you'd better know something about that. You better learn something about that. Those who hadn't been on the Gulf Coast very long tend to be the ones who are in line at Lowe's trying to buy a generator or whatever, you know. But you've been here very long. You figure out the things that you need to do to get back on track. Well, I will say similarly in life, one of the most important things that you can learn to do is to learn how to get back on track. 
Because just like living on the Gulf Coast assures you that you are going to have some major storm hits, you are going to have some major gut punches from storms, and you're, it's not a matter of will you. If you're going to spend a large portion of your life living here, it's just a matter of which years it's going to happen, right? I mean, we, we all are in touch with that. You aren't going to live your whole life here and not get a big punch from a storm, several of those. Well, life is going to do that to you as well in a variety of different different forms. Other kinds of storms and things are going to come your way, and they're going to knock you off track. Have you been there before? Have you been off track before? I know. Me and two others in the room have been off track. We all get there. And it, it comes for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes things happen that, that shock us and, and throw us off. You know, somebody dies or we go through a divorce or some major loss. And, and that can have the effect of just getting us off track. We just we lose direction. A lot of stuff can do that. Sometimes just emotional distress, going through a major season of depression can get us off track. A major illness can get us off track. Some poor decisions that we make in terms of moral choices or, or a poor relationship decision will just get us off track. The bottom line is this. It'll come in a lot of different forms, but everybody listening today will get off track at some different times in life. And so much as is the case in the recovery process where built into the recovery plan it is a focus on what to do when you get off track how to bounce back when you stumble along the way in your recovery you've got to know how to get back on track in life and so that's going to be what we focus on today as we look at the life of elijah and you would think if ever there's a, a character in the old testament who shouldn't ever get off track it would be elijah well elijah's a man he's just a human like you and me and he got off track and we're going to learn from his life what to do when you get off track to get back on. In chapter 19, we pick up the story that left off last week. If you missed last week, it is one of the most climactic and dramatic moments in all of Old Testament history. The people of God would forever remember this moment in time when the people had wandered far from God under a line of wicked rulers, the, the current one in Elijah's lifetime, his name was Ahab and his wife was Jezebel and they were ungodly and they brought in all kinds of idolatrous worship and they truly led the country as far off course as they had ever been. As a nation, they needed to get back on track. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does sound very familiar. We're a country that needs to get back on track. How does that happen? It happens one person at a time. And Elijah was willing to be that man, that person who helped a whole nation get back on track. And so in chapter 18, we see this incredible showdown where after three and a half years of drought and famine that God brought on, that God announced through Elijah, and then he creates this big showdown three and a half years later on Mount Carmel where Elijah basically says, I want you to bring on all these pagan priests and let them come up here and call on their gods, and I'm going to call on the one true God of Israel, and we're going to see which one of those is truly God and which one will bring down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And boy, what a showdown it was. The 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah couldn't call down anything. They couldn't call down a spark from heaven. It was just a show of foolishness for all day long. And at the end of the day, when Elijah put a sacrifice and had, it, had water poured all over it, and then he called on the one true God. He didn't have to cut himself and throw a fit and, and carry on for eight hours. He prayed to God, and immediately fire fell from heaven. The sacrifice and the stones and the wood and the 
the water were, were all consumed. And the people see that and they begin to cry out with one voice and say, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said, That's right. Now kill all these pagan priests. And they're all put to death on the spot. And it's a great victory. And the hearts of the people are turned. And so now we're at this incredible moment where we've seen the hand of God and not only in the the demonstration of who the true God is but now the heavens are opened up and there's rain for the land and so now we're surely we're moving into just a a peace a, a time of peace and rest for Elijah right don't you expect this just to be the big ah I'm glad we're past that now life is good and the exact opposite of what you expect is what's going to happen next Chapter 19, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. You got the message? Jezebel is a wicked woman. She may be more wicked than Ahab, and that's saying a lot. And when she hears what God has done through Elijah, she says, I'm going to have that sucker's head by tomorrow. He will die in the next 24 hours. If he doesn't die, may the gods kill me. I'm going to kill this joker. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Do you not almost get whiplash from, from reading that? I mean, this man has just stood before the entire nation on Mount Carmel. He has called out every wicked prophet and priest from the the other side. He has put it all on the line. He is a man of courage standing before the king who wants to have his head on a platter. And he has been courageous for the Lord his God. And now a woman, a woman is angry and saying, I want him dead. And in this moment, he's scared to death. And he runs for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than any of my ancestors. Have you ever been at that place before? Have you ever just been so used up? So frustrated, so depressed, so discouraged that you just wanted to be dead. I'm not saying you necessarily were suicidal. You weren't necessarily planning to harm yourself. But have you ever just been to that point where you're going, it'd be fine with me if if today was the day. It'd be fine with me if if a, a comet just came, you know, through space and took us out today. I've been there. It hadn't been that many years ago that I was there. I wasn't planning my own demise, but I'll tell you what, I was thinking how wonderful it would be if if the Lord would take me. I mean, I can remember going outdoors in bad thunderstorms just hoping to get struck by lightning. Like, God, I'm not going to take my life, but I will invite you if you'd like to have it. It's yours. You ever just been that far down? That's where Elijah is. God, I'd just rather be dead than continue on. Now, let me ask you a question. At this point... Knowing all that God has done for and through Elijah, how do you expect God to respond to Elijah? I mean, isn't there a part of you that reads this and, and feels like he's being a little bit of a, of a crybaby about it? I'm just being honest. I mean, don't you just 
looking at it from a distance, it's so much easier when you didn't have to live through it to judge what somebody else is going through and to think you should have responded better, Elijah. Yeah, easy for us to say. But but when we read it, it is kind of easy to say that. Like, come on, man, suck it up. Don't run from the woman. Don't you expect God to be kind of angry at him and to scold him? I want you to notice how God responds in, in this moment where you might expect him to be harsh or to be scolding. Elijah lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he went into a cave and he spent the night. There's something really touching about that scene to me. To know that Elijah was at the end of his rope. He was exhausted. He was afraid. He was alone. And he just wanted it to be over. And what he got from God was not a scolding. He didn't get a pep talk. What he got was God sending a personal messenger to be there beside him and to watch him while he slept and to prepare hot bread for him and to feed him and give him water so that when he he woke up he was nourished and then to just let him go back and rest some more and then to feed him and water him again to say want to make sure that you've got what you need that you've got enough in the tank for what's coming next there is something wonderfully tender caring and fatherly about that isn't there to know that, that when you're at the end of your rope, and, and you're not, I mean, let's just be honest. When you're at this place, you are not standing around in worship, raising your hands and singing the heart of worship. You're, you're not. When you're at this place, you got nothing left. You're not doing much in terms of praising God. You're just trying to figure out how to get through today. You're not thinking much about tomorrow because you don't have that left in you. Isn't it good to know that in those moments, God isn't standing there with crossed arms, shaking his head, going, you are such a disappointment. I'm just so disappointed with how you're living your life. No. He is busy sending you what you need in those moments because he's a father. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, remember, this is 40 days later. He's traveled all the way to the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. He's gone up onto Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Do you hear the resignation in that? I mean, he was the prophet of God for the people of God. But Elijah, when God says, what are you doing, Elijah? The, the message between the lines is, Lord, I resign from being your prophet to Israel. Israel doesn't care about you anymore. They have all abandoned you. So I'm just telling you, I'm all that's left and I have left town. If you want to start over, we'll just go down here on the Sinai Peninsula and we can start over from here. But I am done with that place and with those people. An honest answer to God's question. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Which was a really scary thought to people in the Old Testament, because they believed that if you saw God, you'd be dead. So it's a really intimidating thought. 
that God himself is about to pass by in Elijah's presence. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. Doesn't that line mean more to you after this week? <laughs> to some of you who, who were huddled in the most interior room of your house and it still sounded like a freight train was going over your roof, now that verse means more. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. I told Tony we probably should have done an earth, wind, and fire song this morning to set this one up. That would have been appropriate. After the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's got the speech down pat. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. I.e., I am done, God. I am done with being your prophet, your man in Israel. Well, the Lord's about to respond. And let me tell you in short what he's going to say. You may be done, but I'm not done. I'm not done with my people, and I'm not done with you. And even when you've given up on you, I haven't given up on you. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. That's an important line. We're going to come back to that. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael over Aram, anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. The final line in that, a reminder. Elijah, you think you're alone. You think you're the only one left standing. But I have 7,000 scattered across the land who have been faithful to me every day just like you have been. You are not alone in this. And Elijah gets up and he turns around. And he goes back by the way he came, and suddenly he is the man of God again. He is the man who walks with the authority of God and the power of God on his life. He is the God-anointed kingmaker again who can go into foreign lands and say, this will be your next king. Who can go back to his homeland and say, and this will be your next ruler to replace this pagan that's been in charge. He suddenly is a man on a mission from God again, and he finishes what God has called him to do. What we see today is this little window of time where he goes from the mountaintop to deep in the dark valley, but how God restores him and gets him back on track, moving forward, doing what he's been called and gifted to do. What do we learn from Elijah in this story about how we get our lives back on track when we've gotten off? Well, first of all, let me just share one general thought before we get into the four key truths of the day. And the first thought is this. We are often very vulnerable following major victories, spiritual mountaintops, and times of exhaustion. Now, we expect the last of those three. We don't expect the first two, do we? I mean, we get it that when we're totally spent, when life has worn you out, that we're more vulnerable. But the thing we don't expect is that in the moments immediately following the mountaintop, 
we are very vulnerable. These are very emotional and, and oftentimes kind of draining experiences. I'll give you just one very simple example that I've noticed again and again. If you've ever been on mission trips where you've just seen God move powerfully, it's amazing how much when you come back from that time, how easy it is in the season immediately following to really come under attack, to really be vulnerable, to make poor choices, and to just get off course. For many people, when you've been in a very intense ministry environment where God is moving and where you see kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of darkness trying to hold on to people and the kingdom of God overcoming that, and you're just right in the heart of all that, and it's just like, woo, adrenaline all the time, and God is doing good things. But you come out of that season, and it's amazing how many times it'll just be like you stepped off of a cliff spiritually. It's really weird. So many times coming back from mission trips, I'll see people just feel lost. Like, I don't even know how to re-engage anymore. So recognize that what happened with Elijah is something that that we are very vulnerable to. Yes, it's been a a mountaintop for him. But think about what all has gone on at that mountaintop experience. Go back and reread that story. For one thing, just how many times he went up and down Mount Carmel in the course of just a day or two. And it's high-intensity kind of stuff that's going on and... When it's all over with and the rain finally comes, he tucks his his tunic in his belt and actually outruns a chariot to the next town. The dude is exhausted. We shouldn't be shocked that at a moment like that, when the queen says, I'm going to have your hide hanging on the wall by tomorrow, that he just panics. He doesn't respond the way that he should and that he, he abandons everything and he runs out of town recognize the times in your life when you tend to be the most vulnerable one to guard yourself but also give yourself some grace one of the enemy's biggest tools is when we're willing to beat ourselves up saves him the trouble when we're just willing to to be hard on ourselves for the fact that sometimes we get tired sometimes we get we lose focus and we get off track seasons of exhaustion can be some of those times well four lessons that we can learn from elijah today about what you can do when you're in a season like this to get back on track. And the first one is this. Sometimes we must call a time out and depart for a time in order to get to a better place. It says in verse 8 that he traveled 40 days and nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Again, I'm not giving you a geography lesson today, but if you pulled out a map and you looked, he has come way south to just get away. I mean, he's literally left the country to go to to this place that has such spiritual significance for the people of God. I mean, this was the place where the Lord showed up, and for 40 days Moses is there in God's presence, and God gives him all of these instructions for his people, and he's setting them on course for the new life that he had for them. And, And Elijah is just knowing he needs to be able to press the reset button, and he doesn't know where to go. He just knows that he needs to get away, and so he goes to the mountain of God hoping that he's going to receive something there, and he does. But in that, there's just this great reminder that sometimes when you're at a bad place, you can't get to a better place where you are right now. You're going to have to call time out and step away from some things. It may mean that you have to step away from a relationship. It may mean you have to call time out on your job or or some other significant part of your life and just get away to be able to reset. And I don't know that in our culture today that we realize the vital importance of this. It's not a maybe that you might at some point in time need to do this. No, you're going to need to do this. 
In fact, God understood that this was such a fundamental need that you're going to have in life to be reset that he actually built it into the calendar. I mean, obviously, there's the Sabbath today that's a day of rest and, and a reset for every week, and we all need that. We need to observe Sabbath. But the concept of a Sabbath year, we don't give much thought to this as New Testament Christians, and yet it's a principle that really needs to carry over to our lives. I mean, do you realize that the people of God, after six years of, of normal work and just normal life, that the Lord, as a command, said, you have to take off a year, one out of every seven, and, and just get a whole reset. It's a reset for relationships. It's a reset for your heart and your body. And it's a reset for you with me. You take a whole year of downtime. And he said, I'll just provide you with what you need in that year. And I know we, we hear that and we think, well, it doesn't work in the 21st century. I'd be doing good to take a week off, much less take a year off. I'm not saying that you can afford to take a year off. What I'm saying is there is a principle that you cannot afford to miss here. And that is you will need reset time in your life. And you may think you can skip that, but ultimately it'll catch up with you. There are going to be times in your life that you have got to get away, that you've got to be able to disconnect from your computer and from your phone and from the normal stuff of life because you're going to need to be able to reset physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And you have to call a time out to be able to do that. And I get it. Nobody's going to be getting excited and shouting amen over this. Although, quite honestly, if we would buy into this, we would. We would be amening this all day long because it is so refreshing for us. But we're Americans. And Americans just believe work, 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 and retire. And that plan doesn't work very well. We think just, just work like crazy for 40 or 50 years and then retire and life will be good. That is not how God designed us. You're going to need to alternate work with rest, work with rest. And, and a part of that is going to involve having to disconnect for some significant periods of time. The Lord Jesus and his apostles, and in Mark 6 we read, the apostles have been out doing ministry and pairs and, and the power of God showing up everywhere and so there are crowds of people following every pair of disciples. And so when they come back to Jesus, they all converge on Jesus. And it is crazy. It's just like this beehive of activity and ministry that's going on. And so when they returned to Jesus from their ministry tour, they told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place to rest for a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. Brad, do you ever think about what this would look like in the 21st century in terms of like church or, or ministry events when that much of a crowd is coming and man, the power of God's being poured out? Would anybody you know in ministry be willing to do what Jesus did here and go, time out. I know the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, but we need to leave. We just need to go away for a while. What would people in ministry today do? They'd be like, oh, man, we've got to figure out how to extend this thing. How are we going to televise this event? We've got to capitalize on this and make a bigger event out of it. No, that's, Jesus said, it's great what's going on here, but we can't sustain this. You aren't wired to be able to just live 365 days a year at this level. You don't have the capacity for that. And here he is, the son of God, saying, I'm right there with you. I need to step back. You need to step back. Time out. Let's retreat because we all need to rest and recharge and then we'll step back in. Trust me, there will never be a shortage of people who need ministry, who need a touch from the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting how Jesus is totally at peace with God's timing in this? 
we'd be like, no, 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 we can't leave this. Don't you know the disciples were saying that? I mean, we finally, we've got a crowd, Jesus. We've got this thing moving. We're going to usher in the kingdom here. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how the kingdom gets ushered in. There's an ebb and flow always in the kingdom of God being ushered in. And he said, right now, we need to pull back. There will be moments in the future where we'll advance. I would encourage you that not only should you be willing to give yourself permission to pull back and retreat during difficult seasons when you need a reset, but you should schedule, just as God for his people in the Old Testament commanded them to schedule these times, that you and I need to schedule times for recharge. We need to schedule them every year, and we probably need to have a way in our schedule as best we can to build in some longer seasons to step back that can't happen every year that may happen every few years. But I mean, if you don't take like real meaningful vacation time every year, you're probably making a bad mistake because you were built to need a lot of downtime. It's crazy if you go through the Old Testament and you figure out how much downtime God built in for them is a lot. Every year there was these big blocks of time when God said, you can't do any work can't work at all during this time. It's a season that's, that's for another thing altogether. It's a recharge time. So we need to, to schedule these things. And don't feel unspiritual or lazy for doing this. Some of the most powerful leaders that God has used had to do these things constantly in their lives. I mean, like, I can't think of many preachers in the last thousand years who've been more impactful than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mean, God was all over this guy. It's interesting if you read his biography that pretty much every year that he did ministry, and I can't think of anybody I've ever read about that has worked harder and just given more, packed more into the hours of the day than Spurgeon did, and yet every year he would burn out and he would spend three months completely disconnected having to just get recharged and reset. And he just learned to give himself permission every year to take three months completely away he'd have to walk away from the church walk away from everything else and then he'd come back three months later recharged and go like a wild man and there's just that ebb and flow i know of pastors in modern times who are living this out one of the most effective pastors i know uh in the generation right behind me serving in new york city i won't attempt to say his name because he's asian american and i'll get it wrong but he is so effective and yet he builds it into his schedule that he departs every two years for three months because he works like a wild man and he has to have the downtime to reset his own life and reset with his family. Now, it's not easy to do what I'm talking about. You'll have to be super intentional. You'll have to plan and you'll have to work toward having these times. But you need to build it in on a daily basis that you need some, some carved out times to get alone. Some downtimes every day to just be still and be with God. You need some times every week like this to be still in the presence of the Lord. And we need some time just each year, some seasons for this. One of the things we need to learn that this story reminds us of is that solitude and silence are two of God's greatest tools in our lives. And our culture, I can't think of many things that our culture prevents us from experiencing more consistently than those two solitude and silence because our culture values busyness and productivity right walk up to anybody today try, try this out greet 10 people this week and ask them the question how are you doing and see how many times they answer back i'm good but i'm just busy i'm just busy solitude and silence you won't find any 
two things that will tap you into the presence of God and the grace of God more consistently than getting alone and getting quiet just in the presence of the Lord. Elijah had to go a long way to find that. And notice along the way in verses 3 and 4, when he came to Beersheba, even his servant who was always at his side, he left his servant there. And then he just kept on trucking. It's like, I just got to have some time just for me to be alone. Solitude and silence. The second truth is this. We won't get to a healthy place without taking care of our bodies. It's interesting that in this story there's such a big block that is devoted to the fact that he is exhausted and he cannot get to the next thing that God has for him without sleeping, eating, drinking, sleeping, eating, drinking. And God has to help make some of that happen. We don't tend to be good at this. I mean, have y'all noticed this? Americans stink when it comes to the matter of rest. And it's funny how much in the American church we totally miss that one of the most fundamental concepts for all of the people of God, for all ages, is that we are to enter into God's rest. That rest is a part of God's design for everything. You're supposed to spend at least a third of your life completely at rest. I mean, he just wired you this way. I find it so interesting to know that Americans today, on average, compared to Americans who lived just 100 years ago, just a century ago, we get two hours less sleep per night than our grandparents or great-grandparents did just a century ago. Two hours less rest per night. I mean, do you think we need two hours less? Do you think our bodies are just that much more efficient? Now, I can tell you what it is. There has been this thing that has evolved in the, in the psyche of us as a people, as American people, that we believe that you are weak if you get more than about six or seven hours of sleep at night. I mean, you ever just hear people when they compare notes about how much sleep they get? And it's like the person who finally has the guts to say, I got about nine hours of rest last night. Everybody else looks at him like, what's wrong with you? Are you sick or something? Are you just lazy? What's your deal? You slept nine hours, you slacker? If you don't rest, you don't do much very well. You don't do relationships well, short of rest. You won't be good on your job. I'll tell you what you really will not do well. You won't do a relationship with God worth a flip if you're not rested. When's the last time you tried to be still and quiet and pray and just meditate and listen to the voice of God when you're short on sleep? That doesn't ever work out well, does it? And yet we, we marvel that we can't ever seem to hear the voice of God. One of my first questions when people want to talk about this is, well, tell me about your sleep. Tell me about your downtime. Tell me how much rest you're getting. Because you're not going to get what God has for you if you're just burning the candle at both ends. And Elijah, it wasn't primarily a big spiritual problem in his life. The most pressing problem that he had was he was just exhausted. We are a county of exhausted people right now. Amen? I mean, like right now, as in post-Sally, we are all exhausted. I mean, some of you right now are going, preacher, shut up and let me go home and take a nap. I am exhausted. I get it. Some of the mo- sometimes the most spiritual thing you could do on a Sunday afternoon is just take a long nap. I love that there are so many cultures around us that they have built si- a siesta into the middle of their day because they figure out how much better they function the rest of the day if they get an hour's nap in the middle of the day. 
if you don't feed yourself right, if you don't rest yourself right, if you don't exercise your body right, nothing else is going to function like it should. So don't overlook the physical component in this. The third thing we're reminded of in this story is that a fresh encounter with God will completely change your perspective. Thankfully, Elijah had the good sense to realize that he needed a spiritual reset. He needed to meet with God. He isn't, he isn't just looking for a geographic solution to a personal problem. Have you ever watched people do that before? Or have you ever wanted to do that before? A lot of us have. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say pursuing a geographic solution to a personal problem. It's where something is so wrong where I am now. I'm so miserable where I am now. I think I just want to run away. I'll just move to California. I'll just go to another country. I'll run to another state because something isn't working where I am right now. And it, it's got to be easier over there. I'll confess it to you. There have been plenty of times in the last decade where I've thought, I just want to go away. It's got to be easier somewhere else. So California's been mine and Jackie's dream thing. Anytime where we're like stressed out, it's just like, can we just move to California this week? That's looking for a geographic solution to a personal problem. You know what the problem with those solutions is? When you get there and you establish yourself, you discover the problem came with you because the problem is looking at you in the mirror every morning. We didn't escape the problem. We took it with us. Elijah isn't looking for a geographic solution. He's not, he, he is going away to meet with God, but he realizes that the going away isn't going to be the solution. He's going to the mountain of God because he knows that he needs a fresh encounter with God. There's nothing that will recharge you like being in the presence of the Lord. And I understand it. When you're off track, your instincts are not to go be in God's presence. In fact, the... the instinct that kicks in for most of us most of the time is to avoid those times when your life is off track we oftentimes we don't want to pray we don't want to read our bibles we don't want to go to church we sure don't want to be in a small group where we're going to be asked to open up and share that sounds so i don't want to tell you what's going on in my life because i don't even like thinking about it i sure don't want to tell you a bunch of christians who i think you've got your act together and yet some of the healthiest things that we can do or every day to carve out a little window of time just to be alone in the presence of the Lord. To read His Word. Even if it's just very brief, to just, just tell Him very candidly and honestly what's on our hearts, what's on our minds. And to just be still and quiet in His presence and see if there's anything that He wants to show us or tell us. To do that on a daily basis. To make sure that every week that we carve out some time to just be still and quiet with His people and to enjoy worship and just listening and receiving from what God wants to say to us. But also to live in community. To live in a little community of people where 8 or 10 or 12 other people have the opportunity to get to know us, really get to know us, and interact with us, and love us through the hard times, and speak truth to us, and let us just vent and, and share our struggles with them, and when it just may seem like a mess, healing is taking place. And in all of that, the Spirit of Jesus is present, active, and speaking in ways that are pretty hard to miss. Those that have been in freedom for very long have heard me share this before, but 
I'm going to tell it again because this, for me, is one of the most profound encounters with God that I've ever had at a time when my life was very, very difficult. When I had gone through divorce and having to leave the last church that I served, and the year that followed, many months after leaving Coates and, and just setting out to start Freedom, it was an exhausting time. Anybody who's been through a divorce knows how completely exhausted you are. You need to depart for about a year. I mean, you just feel it. It's, it is so incredibly draining. You question yourself at every level. Just, just a lot of hard stuff in that year. And launching a church, Brad, you know this. I mean, it, it takes a lot out of you in planting a church. It just it involves a lot. And so that year, was I was very fragile. I, I just admit, man, very fragile and very empty. I hadn't run from the Lord, but just you just still feel so drained and empty. And so, I don't know, in, in the first few months of the birth of this church, I'm trying to be faithful to what God has called me to, and yet every day of my life, I just feel like I am leading on an empty tank. I'm doing my best to get my tank refilled, and yet just still feeling like I never get it off the E, hardly at all. Just, just my tank is so, so empty. And along the way, the enemy sends a lot of people to say things that aren't encouraging. There are people who say some really hurtful things. and I mean, some are just blatant. It's crazy how ugly Christian people can be. And some of them are saying to me, as we've just lost the church and I'm just coming out of a divorce, and there are people who are just saying explicitly to me, what you're doing is an abomination. God would never use somebody like you who is divorced to pastor a church. What do you think you're doing? Well, some of you have been in this kind of place, so you can appreciate what I'm saying. You're fragile enough in that time that there are days when you can just take that like water off a duck's back and go, you know, that, that's not the truth. I don't receive that as the truth. And yet there are other days where you go home and you get alone and it's like, wow, could that be true? I mean, could God just be done with me? Could God just be sick of me? Is God just so disappointed in me that, that he doesn't have any use for me and that he doesn't he isn't pleased with what i'm trying to do to serve him have i just missed the boat and what we're doing here and so i had gotten to that place where enough of that negative stuff had gotten in my head that i'm like god i need one thing right now and i know what i need i don't need a pep talk i just need you to tell me or show me what you think right now and it, it may be, I was, there's no may to it. It was absolutely, I remember this day so clearly, it was one of the most honest conversations I've ever had with God. And I just said, with all the stuff that's going on with me, what anybody else thinks is not what matters right now, but I desperately need to know what you think. I need to know if you're mad at me, are you disappointed with me? Are you pleased with me? I, don't, I just don't have any idea right now, and more than anything else in my life, I need you please to tell me what you think of me right now. Because that's all that matters, but I, I need it from you. I need you to tell me. And I just remember being at home alone in my bedroom and just crying out to God and not knowing what to expect. I, I mean, I, I was kind of scared of what, what I would get in return. You want to know what I was most scared of? I was most afraid that I would get nothing in return. And after a time of just pouring my heart out and just being still and listening, and it was nothing but crickets. And I'm becoming more alarmed by that and honestly getting kind of mad about it. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever just cried out to God for an answer and all you can hear is just silence? And it's like, come on, God, do you even care? That's what I'm feeling in that moment. And I'm just, I'm trying to not go to a dark place and I'm trying to not just have my anger get out of control toward the Lord. But I'm like, I don't get it. Why can't you in a moment like this say something? Ding dong, the doorbell rings. It's the middle of the day and I'm not expecting anybody. I go to the door and I open the door and Nels Frerichs is at my door. Nels is just one of the dearest men of God that I have ever known. He's in heaven now. But uh, at that time, Nels was a part of our church and had known him for a few years. He was in our small group. He was Nels was an unusual guy in that, I mean, he just lived life just different from the rest of the world. He was like 70 years old, had always been single, and he just served the Lord in ways that are, were extraordinary. And he heard from the Lord in ways that were pretty jaw-dropping. Having him in your small group was was a game changer because the things that he would share would would take over the night in positive ways because of how he heard from God. Nels is at my front door, and he's got a box in his hand. And from the time that I open the door, I can just tell he's embarrassed to be there, and he's apologizing for being there from the moment that I open the door. He said, I, I am so sorry to disturb you. I know this probably is going to seem really weird. The Lord told me, he, and Nels lived in Foley, I'm in Fairhope. And he said, the, the Lord told me that I'm supposed to come here and give you this. And I, that seemed weird, but it was so clear that I was supposed to come and do this. And so he was like, well, God, you know, I'm going to his house tonight. I'm going to be with him tonight for small group. I'll just do it tonight. And the Lord said clearly, no, this can't wait. You have to go now. You have to drive now and give him this box. And he's like, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you. But he said to bring you this box. Well, it's not just a box. It is, it, it, I've still got it in my office. I see it every day. It's, it's like a treasure, a small treasure chest. It looks like something from a movie. And he said, he, he didn't just tell me to give you this box. He told me to deliver a message to you. And he said, I wrote it down for you. It's, it's in the box. And here, I'm sorry if that seems weird, but I'm, I'm going to leave this with you. But what the Lord said that he wants you to know today is that you are his cherished treasure. I don't know why you needed to know that now. I was going to tell you tonight. But the Lord said you needed it now. So I'm just going to give you this box. And he walked away. And I couldn't begin to tell him in that moment the power of what he was doing. Because in my hour of greatest need, when I'm getting mad at God, why won't you tell me? All I want to know is where I stand with you and what I mean to you. That God has already said, Nels, there's a brother in just a moment who's going to really need to hear from me. And his head is so full of other people's words, he might not recognize my words. And so I need for you to speak for me and tell him what he needs to hear. Friends, I want to tell you, when God shows up, And when God speaks, suddenly it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't mean what anybody else offers in terms of discouragement. I can honestly say, I love the approval of people as much as anybody else. But if you don't like me and if you hate what I'm doing, it's not going to change what I'm doing. Because this I know. 
I know where I stand with God, and I know with certainty what He thinks of me. Doesn't mean I always get it right. Doesn't mean I don't need correction. Doesn't mean I can't disappoint Him. But I know at the end of the day where I stand with Him because in an hour of need, He showed up and He spoke a personal word. And to this day, it does something in my heart to remember that. Elijah was at that place. He didn't know what God would say to him. But he knew that he needed a fresh encounter with God and a fresh touch from God. And what I want to say to you is, it will always be personal. It will always be individual and unique. And you can't schedule the timing of it. But God will show up. And God will speak. And it won't be with a loud clap of thunder or the rushing wind or the fire. It's interesting that all those things were there and the scripture says and the Lord wasn't in those things. It's a reminder that we ask for these great signs and we almost never get them. But when God showed up and spoke to Elijah, it was a quiet, gentle whisper. Again, a reminder that we've got to get still and quiet and step away to even hear the sound of a whisper. And it just reminds me of the value of, of the things that we take part in like this. I mean, I just think if I had not been in a small group, Nels wouldn't have been in my life. Nels wouldn't have shown up at my door delivering a message from God. It's in the context of community that God speaks so much of the time. And the fourth and final truth is this. A renewed sense of calling and purpose helps to relight our fire. I hear people get really discouraged and frustrated because they feel like, I just don't even know why I'm here. I don't know why God would leave me here. I don't know what my purpose is. And I want you to recognize that a big part of what God did for Elijah was not just that he showed up and was present with him, though that's huge. But the Lord reminded Elijah, I'm not finished with you. I have a calling and a purpose for your life. And I want you to notice there are three things that he assigned him to do. He assigned him to go to a foreign land... And impact matters there. He assigned him to to go back the way he came. You don't get to run away. You don't get to have a geographic solution to the problem. You get you got to go back to where you came from. You're going to have to go back to your homeland and help to affect change and usher in new leadership there. And oh, by the way, your third assignment is to replace yourself. Your third assignment is to make an investment in the next generation. So interesting. Elijah is the towering prophet, the prototype of all prophets in the Old Testament. But his ministry was only about 10 years long. Next week when Brad brings the final message in this series about impacting the generation coming behind you to realize Elisha's ministry in many ways eclipsed Elijah's because he had a ministry of more than 50 years. And he got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So here's this three-part assignment. I have an assignment for you to impact the nations. I have an assignment for you to impact the people where you live. And I have an assignment for you to impact the life of one person who's coming along behind you in the next generation. And friends, I want to tell you, if you feel lost, like, I don't even know what God has for me. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing to make a difference. Why don't you use those three things as sort of a grid for you to look at your life and say, you know what, I could do something at those three levels. First of all, the nations. 
If you feel like your life is not having an impact, that you're not doing anything to make any difference, first of all, engage somewhere in what we're seeking to do to advance the kingdom among the nations. Get involved with what God's calling us to do in Nigeria. Get involved with what God's connecting us with through Mary Purvis and Guatemala Landing Zone, feeding people, giving them the gospel, impacting lives every single day. Get involved with what the connections God has with us with uh, Bill and Kathy Craver and DCI in the Yucatan. Get involved with us in the connection that we now have with Chris and, and the Graceport folks uh, now uh, going to Central America in Honduras and the ministry that's taking place there. When you get connected to what God is doing in the nations, it is amazing how much we get back out of that. And if you're not feeling in any way led in any of those directions, at the very least, get connected to impacting a life somewhere else through something like Compassion International or World Vision and impact one life and one family through that. But determine that you're going to let God use you to touch somebody who's living in a place of great need in other countries. By the way, you don't have to wait until your heart is passionate about those things. It's been a surprise to sort of look back and to realize some of the places where God has most connected me and and where there has been the most fruit and impact, it's been in places where initially when God would begin to stir or point in a direction, I'm like, I don't feel anything about those people. I mean, nothing extraordinary. I mean, the first time God was calling me to go to Africa, I didn't want to go to Africa. It's like the biggest thing I feared my whole life. Thinking since I was 14 years old, I was afraid if I followed Jesus, he'd send me to Africa. That's the last thing I want to do. I've been running from that for decades. Send me to Africa. I go over there for the first time, and people are just telling me on the airplane, you're not going to believe it, it's going to change your life. And I heard that enough that I wanted to go, would you shut up? I've had my life changed. I'm ready for the next thing. Looking forward to the, the plane ride home. That makes you feel good about your pastor, doesn't you? Spiritual giant standing up there leading. It's just the truth. I'm, I'm flying over with a bad attitude. I'm like, part of me is looking forward to it, and part of me is sick of you telling me how much it's going to change my life. Got over there and it rocked my world. It changed me forever. I have to go, dadgummit, they were right. And they were. I mean, I was, I was ruined forever. I'm like, I'm in love with the Africans forevermore and couldn't wait to go back and back again and, and can't wait to get back there. And that was East Central Africa. And I've been in love with those people and what God's doing ever since. And I had no idea that West Central Africa, God had a calling for that. And I meet this guy named Isaiah and God makes a connection there and he's from Nigeria. And I'm like, I don't feel anything for Nigeria, not in the least. I'm going to have to look hard on the map to figure out where it is. You know, I mean, that's me in Nigeria. You let a little time pass and mix in the Holy Spirit and the call of God. And now I'm just like, you can't shut me up talking about Nigeria. I can't wait to get to Nigeria. I'm, I'm dying because this stupid COVID thing is keeping us from getting to Nigeria. And, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to see what God's doing there. And what I'm telling you is the call of God and the connections that God makes oftentimes will run ahead of what your heart is feeling. Sometimes you just got to go ahead and get your toe in the water, even when you're not ready to be wet, and say, I think God may be leading this way, even though I don't feel the warm fuzzies over that. And not everything that you try is going to be your thing, but along the way you're going to find some things that are your thing and your calling. So whether it's internationally or right here at home, and I would encourage you, you've got a calling for both most likely. What can you be doing right here? What can you be doing through the ministries of this church right here to impact others? We can help you find ways to do that. But also, who in your life 
is in the generation behind you that you can begin to make an investment in them. Be intentional about this. God hasn't left you here just to take up space and use up oxygen. He has left you here to impact somebody coming along behind you. And if you don't have a clue how to do that, man, we would love to equip you in how to do that. We have a process for doing that, that it won't be vague and you won't be lost. We want to help you be a disciple maker. But don't just let time pass. For some of us, some in the room, some of you watching and listening online right now, this word is for you for right now. And the Holy Spirit is tapping on your chest saying, you know your life has been off track. You know you have gotten off course, and it is time. Today is the day to get back on track. What is the first thing that you need to do to begin to turn your heart and life toward the Lord? You don't need to wait. Now is the time. Would you just turn your heart toward him in prayer right now as we bow before him? Oh, God, we are so grateful for your love and your patience and how you do honor us by calling us to be a part of your work. Sometimes we get so distracted and we get off course, but you are so faithful to bring us back to yourself and back to, to your calling for our lives. Help us to recognize how we need to make adjustments. Holy Spirit, help us in faith to say yes to you. If today you need to take that first major step of getting on track by trusting Jesus to be your Lord, your Savior, the pilot in your life, why don't you just pray a simple prayer of faith that says, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness for my sins. I need your leadership for my life. I need your power in me to change me. Would you save me, forgive me, and make me new? Well, if you prayed that from your heart, God heard it and answered it. Share it with somebody today. If you did it and you're watching online, please message us and let us know that. We just want to encourage you and pray for you and help you take the next steps forward. There are a lot of folks who've already trusted Christ, but boy, today is God's call to get back on track. What is the next thing that God would have you do to seek to follow Him and be obedient to His call on your life? Is it just to be faithful to get back in His Word and spending time alone with Him each day? Is He calling you to, to get connected to the fellowship, to get in fellowship in a small group? Is there a ministry that He's calling you to? What is God saying? Would you today say yes to God's call on your life? Jesus, we offer you ourselves. We pray that you would speak and give clarity and direction. And where there is adjustments, where there are things that we need to change and repent of, we ask you, Holy Spirit, you just be direct and honest with us. Show us what we need needs to change. If getting on track means we've got to get out of a relationship, then God, give us the strength and the courage to move, to, to step away. If getting back on track means stepping into new relationships, stepping into your word, stepping into fellowship, we want to say yes to those things. Holy Spirit, you speak, you work, have your way among us. We thank you for what you're doing. And we honor you today. We give you praise. We pray these things, Jesus, in your matchless name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. 
we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.